0: Hello and a warm welcome to the second episode for November 2023 of the BV Podcast, bringing you a choice selection of rural Dorset delights. I'm Jenny Devitt. And hello and welcome from me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, Dorset Council Leader Spencer Flower tells us something about himself and gives his choice of Dorset Island Discs. And you can hear part two of my interview with West Dorset
1: MP Chris Loader during which we cover topics as diverse as the state of government at Westminster, the seemingly relentless drive towards a cashless society, and
0: speed cameras on the A30. And Penny Nagel of Feltham's Farm tells us about the new monthly Horsington Community Market, which was her brainchild. I'll be speaking to Chris Holbrook and Ed Waldron of Orris Leather about how their
1: interest in fine leatherwork has turned into something of a business venture.
0: This month's Dorset Island Discs have been chosen by the leader of Dorset Council, Councillor Spencer Flower. He was born in Gillingham, in his grandmother's house. He also lived briefly near what was Westlands and Yeovil. Then the family moved to Weymouth, where he lived from the age of nine until twenty-one. He began his career as an engineering apprentice, then left to try his luck in London. There, he started work on the shop floor, switching to become a junior draftsman, even though it meant a pay cut. Spencer Flower worked his way up into engineering and project management, and that was the start of a 24-year career with the same company. Eventually, he became a line manager, looking after contracts and commercials, which gave him solid experience that would prove useful later, as did a move into general management with the English branch of an American company. Then he was headhunted and, as he told Laura Hitchcock, following an unexpected opportunity, moved back to Dorset.
2: I've never really aspired to do, but the opportunity was there. And again, I'm a, one of these people, I'm a bit of a pragmatist. I look at what's in front of me and decide whether, that's, whether it's in my favour or not. And whatever it is, I'll deal with it. And this opportunity came along and I, I took it and I, and I got the job. And um, I was with the company for 16 years. And we trebled the turnover in that time. And so I left it in a reasonable shape. But, but I started getting in, interested in local politics. And in some respects, I said, this is the sort of thing that I'm probably know more of these days. I got involved, I became a parish councillor in 1992. Um, having been walking my dog at the time, car pulled up. It was all about being a parish councillor. <laughs> I said, well, not really. I'm thinking about maybe a district council being something I'm interested in. I said, well, it's a good stepping stone, so I got co-opted. I got co-opted onto uh, the local parish uh, council, and um, and then when the elections came along, it was the time of the, uh, I think it was nineteen ninety five, I think it was, and um, I stood. I, it was a last minute decision. I didn't get elected. I lost by about thirty old votes, but um, it had been a safe seat for. I'm a conservative, but it had been a safe seat for independent or or liberal seat at the time and I thought I'd give it a go and I thought next time round if I'm going to stand, I'm going to do it again I'm really going to do it so I, I, I didn't win and um, so in four years hence 1999 uh, I stood again I knocked on every door I delivered leaflets and leaflets and you know Ava pole I did everything you could imagine and I won and I won with a pretty good majority actually. And, um, and I stayed as the district council uh, councillor in Knowlton uh, Ward, uh, Holt Ward, I should say, Holt Ward, um, for 16 years until I, I got involved in a, a reorganisation of warding. And I managed to do myself out of a job because we went from 36 councillors to 29 and Holt Ward disappeared, it got amalgamated. But I got another ward in Burwood where I was then living. And um, also in between that, Time I got um, onto the county council. I'm glad for punishment, obviously. Was
3: that a a conscious choice on your part, or yeah, again, opportunity
2: like a lot of these things, opportunities come along, offer themselves, and you think, "Mm, I wouldn't mind getting on county. I think that might be interesting, and so I got on the county council in Vermont in two thousand and six. Time goes by, doesn't it? And um, and obviously I was on that right the way through until it was disbanded in 2005, because it was on there 14 years, it was disbanded in 2019 mm-hmm. to form our unitary, as did the district at the same time. So I went from parish, district and a county councillor, I stood for the unitary and um was fortunate enough uh, to win a, a seat in a three-member ward in Verwood. And, um, Consequent to that, I also got elected at that time as the leader of the Conservative group and de facto the leader of Council. So this was my third leadership. I've been a leader of a district council for five years, then another three, two years in between as a county leader. And now I'm in my fifth year as the leader of Dorset, the first leader of Dorset Council, the Unitary Council that was formed in 2019. So I've got local government in my blood. The thing I that, that motivates me is that I like to, to help people. I'd rather I get far more out of giving than I do out of receiving. It's something that I've always been like that. I've always been um, involved in getting a good, I'm a, I'm an, I'm an outcome driven person. Um, someone said to me, "I was a workaholic," and I said, "No, no, no. I'm an achieveraholic. A workaholic can work very hard all day and achieve nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm an achieveraholic. I link all my efforts <laughs> to my results, and I'm a, a results orientated and And I think in many ways, getting involved as I have in leadership of of councils, I've been able to use my business knowledge, how to manage businesses, understand balance sheets and have a good understanding of management accounts and how you can structure things, all of that. I've learned a huge amount and um, and I've learned from colleagues prior to me, colleagues that I respect and listen to and and use their experience to my advantage. So it, that, that's, that's my sort of broad background. And here I am today. I brought you to
0: here.
3: And here. So, I mean, obviously I've done a little bit of reading and seen the, some of the things you were saying. And I saw an article that you, you'd done an interview recently where you were saying that Dorset gets a pretty raw deal in terms of money being given from the government. And I've heard this from so many different councillors that it gets uh, overlooked and underestimated the difficulties mm-hmm. of being such a rural county the general perception is well, they're all retired and wealthy, mm. and yet there are some very specific poverty related issues mm. with Dorset, and obviously, presumably, in, in running a county for such a disparate county and yeah. such varying degrees of people mm. within it.
2: Yes, it's, I mean, I've, I've when I became the leader in uh, May 19, 2019, um, it was probably one of the shortest on record um, acceptance speeches where I said that, um, apart from thanking everybody for supporting uh, my nomination, I said, I want you to be aware that I'll be an advocate for Dorset, not an apologist for government. And I'll work across this chamber, because we're all elected to do the best we can for the people that in our individual wards. Yeah. And collectively as a council, that's my ethos, and I won't, I won't budge from it, and I haven't. I've, and I, Although I've come in for the occasional bit of criticism about, you know, I don't believe in tribal politics. I believe, I don't believe in, in rigidly following an ideology or, or, or anything like that. I'm very much in favour of working as a team, getting the best outcomes. And we've had some um, significant successes within the council, working collectively across the chamber. Uh, you know, we, I've got a majority of four, and yet our budgets have been approved. I think the last one I remember easily is the one we agreed in February of this year. A majority of 49 so it meant across the chamber the vast majority of colleagues um, and then there was a few um, absentees but the majority across the chamber supported the budget because it was a common-sense budget why wouldn't it be you know it's balanced it's we've managed to um despite the issue about funding and we rely very heavily on our local taxpayer for more than we should do 84 pence in the pound of our bud our income comes from the local taxpayer the national average for unitary uh, councils is 67p. So it's quite a disparity. Yeah. Um, we get a very, very small amount of revenue support grant these days, where if you compare us with the likes of some of the, the boroughs in London, they get 20 or 30 million a year um, with much lower council tax. And it's perverse, isn't it? Because the current formula works on if you've got low, low council tax, you get revenue support grant. If you've got high council tax, don't. Now, I've got high council tax because we don't get any, so it's a really <laughs> which diverse... means you get less, yeah. yeah. So I've been lobbying really hard, uh, and I have, and um, uh, I remember early on in my tenure being told nobody in Westminster really knows about Dorset, and I thought, well, I'm going to change that. They know about Dorset now. I can assure you, lots and lots of I write lots of letters to um, secretaries of state and ministers, and and um, to be fair to the uh, to Michael Gove, who I've had contact with, I've met him uh, a couple of times uh, on different issues. He's given me to, he, uh, I mean, when I talked to colleagues across the country that I had half an hour with Michael Gove. they go, you're joking. We, nobody can get near him, but I've managed to, and that's partly been through the help of local MPs that have managed to get me, I've written to Michael and complained about like the local plan. I set out what I thought it ought to look like and, which it wasn't what it, where it was. No. And he, he gave me half an hour of his time with his, uh, I think she's the head head uh, of uh, planning UK, which is a really high level yeah. person, and I had a c- couple of meetings with her, which were really helpful. So we re- we sort of paused our local. We well, didn't pause it. We changed the direction of our local planning and started thinking around what it might look like should the government change their standard methodology. And it's been changed. The uh, Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill is now an act, um, and many of the things that I felt we should see changed in the local plan is in that, in that legislation. So I'm optimistic that um, we'll be able to frame a better local plan for the people of Dorset going forward. So that's a bit of work where I've lobbied and I've had responses. As far as the financial stuff's concerned, um, we've had some success. We, someone said, well, you never get anything. And I pointed out the other day that in in I do a leader's bulletin. I do a leader's announcements and I publish a bulletin after full council um, every time and uh, uh, the last one I pointed out that we've managed to attract £121 million worth of one-off funding for different projects um, as a result of our lobbying so it's not that we've had nothing we have but the pressure is on our revenue account so that's that area that I'm pursuing really hard I've written to Michael Gove again recently I've had a response I'm not happy with it I recognise that we're towards the end of a in parliamentary cycle. Um with no doubt there'll be a general election next year. But that doesn't help Dorset. You know, we'll have yeah. a balanced budget and I've managed to uh, the criteria I set with officers has been absolutely firm from the very beginning. There will be no service cuts. Don't come to me until you've looked at every avenue to reduce our costs uh, before we start looking at what we what we should reduce in a way we deliver our services and we haven't. And I'm proud of that and, and it's one of those things where if you say, well, okay, then it's an easy route. And I don't want an easy route. I want a constructive route, a long-lasting route of delivering our services at an affordable cost. And I recognise that we put a huge burden on the people of Dorset. And I'm trying to get it so that we can re- gradually reduce uh, that burden over time. But we've got the, um, our demographics in Dorset are way out of line with the national. In our over 65s, is hitting 30% now. But I think we've got the highest number of over 84s in the country, so again we shouldn't begrudge that. People do want to come and live uh, and in and spend their their days in final days in, in Dorset, which is I have no problems with at all. But what doesn't come with is no recognition from national government, and that puts a burden on us, our local taxpayers, because of the you know, the additional adult social care costs, and that's huge. It's uh, 142 million out of 348 million. So it's quite a significant wow, a chunk of money. Chunk. The next big one, of course, is children's services. Yeah. And that's in the 50 million. So the social care of both children and and uh, young, younger, younger people and adults is pretty huge. Um, and uh, <clears throat> we don't get any <clears throat> any support from government to fund that. So what we've done, we've, as I said, we became a, a unit, we went from six councils to one. We went for convergence, which brought the six to one, got rid of all the duplication, got rid of all but one one chief exec for a start, and mm-hmm. we had one senior management team rather than, than all too many. And we've managed to save, and then we've gone into economies of scale, done lots of transformation work. I thought we'd save 70 million quid over the first five years of the council, and we're looking as though we're going to save about 110. That's, that's all been massive. rolled back into service delivery, which means we have... That's, That is the key reason why we haven't had to cut services. We've managed to self-fund our services by our own efforts. But in the meantime, that's buying time. But it doesn't stop me saying to government, you're not funding the shires. Not just Dorset, all the shires are underfunded. There's a formula that's used nationally for determining how how they distribute the um, pot when it comes to um, settlements. In December, government started dishing out money for this, that and the other. And the thing that they, they haven't got in the factor, one is the age demographic, which isn't in there, and the other one is rurality, because the cost of delivering services in rural areas, as you'll appreciate with the extra mileage travelling yeah. around, particularly the domiciliary services for adult social care, is hugely bit bigger than it is in, a, in an urban area. So there's that, and I think there's a recognition, the government recognises that, but if they're going to get around to come up with a fairer funding formula at some point... Um, but it ain't gonna be this side of the uh, general election, yeah. that's for sure. Um, but it won't. It doesn't stop me, as I have. I have regular meetings with our MPs. and they're always good meetings. They're helpful meetings. They act as a conduit between Dorset Council and government, and likewise from government to Dorset Council. Mm-hmm. So it's a really helpful and healthy uh, relationship. And they know. They know that I, I'm on the warpath. I'm always very polite, very assertive, <laughs> and very polite. But I won't take no for an answer. I don't think it's my job to accept second best of people at Dorset. And that, I believe that's my my ethos that I, I apply to everything I do.
0: And then to Spencer Flowers' record choices.
2: I picked the first three. Um, Rod Stewart, uh, Have I Told You I Love You, and Lana Richard Truly and Coldplay Evergreen because they're a memory of my, my late daughter. I lost Tracy uh, seven years ago. She had... Um, undiagnosed stomach cancer. Well, I, I could go on, I won't. But, um, she did. And um, sadly, I lost her at the age of 48. It's so, you time. know, it, and, and it's something that I, I mean, I think, still think about her every day. Um, it's my way of coping with it, with my loss. I mean, I can talk about it because it helps me. Buckling it up doesn't help me. And um, she and I, had a, Tracy and I had a really, really good you know, dad-daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. And whenever the phone went, I'd go, OK, what's up, what's up, how much do you want, advice sort or of money? It was one or the other. And um, we had that relationship all the way through. And uh, whenever I've done, I have done a few uh, uh, radio uh, interviews where they've asked me, what songs do you want? I always pick either all three or at least two of those. <clears throat> and in the fact, they say, is it the usual ones? And I say, yes.
3: So are these songs that you, you played with her or just where the lyrics remind you of her?
2: No, I, I played them because when we got... After she died, my wife and I looked at her taste. We had a look at what she played and say we well, had to pick some songs for the funeral. And we picked these three, and um, because of that, I mean, apart from Coldplay, which is I like Coldplay, but Evergreen's not would wouldn't be on my top of my list to listen to. The other two I would listen to, and I just I've just kept those in my mind yeah. as that that little link to uh, when she was alive, you know.
0: And aside from Lionel Richie's Truly, Rod Stewart's Have I Told You Lately That I Love You, and Coldplay's Everglow, Spencer Flower chose Queen's We Are the Champions, Elvis' It's Now or Never, Frank Sinatra's My Way, Tom Jones' It's Not Unusual, and the Eagles' Hotel California. His book of choice for his desert island is Success Through a Positive Mental Attitude by Napoleon Hill. His luxury item is a chilled glass of dry white wine. And if a giant wave came along, he would save Lionel Richie's truly, because, he says, it leads him to his daughter, Tracy. In the last edition of the
1: podcast, we carried my interview with West Dorset MP Chris Loder, during which he answered a number of questions which had been submitted in advance by BV Magazine readers. After we'd concluded that part of the interview, I took the opportunity to ask Chris a few follow-up questions on subjects he's recently vocalised and on the broader political situation in the run-up to an election. (laughs) <laughs> I want to ask you a couple of other questions yeah, of uh, in the remaining time that's available to us. You've been quite vocal recently about the A30 Sherblatt, sure, to Yeovild dual yes, carriageway, yeah. uh, which you regard as dangerous. I mean, it's certainly a bit of a racetrack at times, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. What can realistically be done there? I think your suggestion was it needs to, um, speed, cameras, um, speed cameras, average speed cameras. Uh, we don't see that many of those, I presume, because they must be quite expensive to, to install.
4: You're right we don't see many of them, but I think we need to see more of them and we definitely need to see them on that road there. there's different political views actually on the a30 so my political opponents believe that the speed should be reduced from 70 to 60 as as a means to solve the issue. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is actually 70 miles an hour as a speed limit if it was respected should be fine. The problem is people who don't respect 70 miles an hour. ...and they go 80, 90, 100... ...I mean, the people that live on the... ...on the Sherbourne-bound carriageway... ...just over the top of Babylon Hill... ...you know, on a regular basis... ...they've had cars land in their garden... ...because they've lost control... ...often where it's been wet and so on... ...so that's why I think the solution there is average speed cameras... ...because you can't... ...you know sometimes where you've got... um, ...a speed camera, static speed camera... ...you see cars slow down... ...go past the speed camera and the white lines afterwards... ...and then speed up afterwards... That doesn't happen with average speed cameras. And in order to save lives on that road, there needs to be a better control of speed. I'm sorry to say, but it is necessary. I've pushed Dorset Council quite a lot with the need to get a grip with the white lines and the bollards and the signage on that road. and I'm very disappointed that the road safety manager has not taken that seriously, in my opinion. work in progress, then. Yeah, but the yeah. average speed cameras... Um, I think will be a good thing. that's why I've decided to campaign for them to, for okay. us to have them. Yeah.
1: Cashless society, yep. uh, that's the other thing. I mean, you, you've been quite prominent in advocating that we don't go too far down the road of electronic payments. We do retain cash. In a sense, is that not sort of fighting against the incoming tide that this is a, an inevitability? That You know, we,
4: certainly COVID advanced it markedly, didn't it? I think electronic payments, I think, in many ways, are quite good, but some people feel very uncomfortable about the level of access to which others have to their bank account, whether that's through using a card, or whether that's through the possibility of being um, subject to fraud or some sort of prankster. And you know, I have had constituents who have been susceptible to this and have lost a lot of money as a result of it, and. Where people choose, they should be able to use legal tender to pay for the goods or services they're they're purchasing. That is legal tender, you know, it's absolutely right. And older people feel much more strongly about this than younger people, it's fair to say. And I think we should um ensure that access to cash is maintained. Um I mean, here in in Sherbourne, the Nat West Bank, the HSBC Barclays, Cheltenham and Gloucester—that was, you know—they've all closed in Sherborne. We've just got Lloyd's left. You know, I don't—I I don't think Lloyd's is going to close. Certainly not anytime soon. But if it did, that would have a huge effect on whether people could access cash, pay in cash, or checks uh, to their bank. Um, and I think it's very important that we keep that ability—not just the ability to use cash, but the ability to bank as well. Because you know, if you have to go to Yeovil. It's a nightmare getting into Yeovil, and if you haven't got your own car, it's it's almost impossible. This whole level of rural isolation—not just literally being remote, but rural isolation in terms of access, in terms of you know finances, digital, all those kind of things—it um, is important, I think, that the rural MPs make the case for rural people, especially rural or, or, uh, older people who are in rural areas. Okay.
1: Can we close with a little bit of a discussion about mm. the the bigger picture? Yeah. I mean, we're, depending on whose prediction you listen to, about 12 months away from a general election consensus seems to be, although it yeah. could technically go to the end of January 2025. At the moment, we are seeing Conservative Party lagging by anything up to 15, 20 percentage points in the polls. Labour 44, Conservative 25 was a recent one. You've got the COVID inquiry ongoing, which isn't, you know, I mean, yeah. fascinating to listen to it, but mm. it's not painting a particularly good picture. You've got dentistry, you've got NHS waiting lists, you've got um, cost of living. There's a lot of things which are stacking up to make it mm. look not quite so great for the uh, for the Tory party. What's your view on it all? Is there any yeah. way back, or is this a lost cause?
4: It's certainly not lost cause. How did I know
1: you were? Going how to did, say how that? did
4: you know that? Yeah, well. <laughs> In the run-up to the 2015 election, I remember the polls not being too dissimilar in terms of the distance apart. I think we're either looking at a general election in May next year or uh, October, November next year. A lot can happen in that period of time. You know, I, I, I was I was reading in um, uh, in the papers uh, a few weeks ago that one of my um, opponents was getting excited because there was a poll that showed a you know a hundred majority swing or something like that and no one from any political party can have a strength of view that means they're going to win or lose so far ahead of an election it just it just doesn't happen that way um things you know a week is a long time in politics in some cases a couple of days is a long time in politics and you can see so much change i mean i'm not going to i'm not going to pretend that everything is rosy and great because i can tell you it's not but the one thing certainly for me that happens regardless is that the politics of westminster do not actually affect the work that constituencies mp constituency mps can and should do to help people in need and with local campaigns
1: I think a lot of people will acknowledge that. Mm. But mm. equally, you've got media in a way that it's never been before. Social media, yeah. it's all over 24-hour news. Mm. Uh, the mm. kind of difficulties that the government's got into. Um, where, yeah. Where's it gone wrong since Boris Johnson returned 85 seats majority or were, were thereabouts in 2019? Yeah. Is it COVID? Is it Brexit? What, what is it that's
4: turned people off? I think it's probably a bit of a snowball of things that have you know, cause people um, real concern, actually. You know, COVID, when you think about actually the 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 glory days of the vaccinations and the vaccine being found um, and the extent of the cost of living support that the government has given to people has been huge. Um, and also what the government has done to support the Ukrainian people, what we have all done to support people um refugees who've needed a safe haven there's been so much good and of course when we go through times of political turbulence we often forget the good that we have done and the things that are working well in society i do i i do think that at at the moment the you know the media narrative is a difficult one uh, without any question you know um And I think it's sometimes quite unfortunate from a local perspective when there are good things to say, but the press aren't interested in it. You know, we've got one at the moment, not in so much in our area, but in in the western part of the constituency with the Axe Valley Ring and Ride. You know, that was was covered in a big negative way in that it was being shut down when actually we had an alternative um, provider. You know just one small example and and there are others on a more national um a, a national level, but you asked me you know basically you know as has it has in effect this become you know i think existential um no, it clearly hasn't it is difficult, and the by-election results often show that. But equally, you know, the by-election results had very low turnouts as well. So I would just say it's too early to say, and I think um, people will make that opinion known at the poll of polls, which, of course, is the general election on the day it comes. So, comes. Uh, closing
1: question then. Your majority last time was 14,000. 28th safest seat, uh, Conservative seat. Did you say 28th? 28th, I think. Really? Yes. What's going to happen next time? Are you confident?
4: <laughs> oh, God. I don't think anyone can be confident to the point where they can be assured that they are uh, going to be re-elected, um, and I also think it's bad form to take it for granted either. Uh, as well, um, I've never taken it for granted. The wonderful thing about democracy is that the electorate chooses, and they choose what they want and they choose who they want. And you know, I am one of will probably won't be one of four again but you know i look back i look back at the last election and i remember i was being i was really worried the day before the election when regardless of majorities because i don't think people should measure majorities as the success of the candidate because of things like uh, tactical voting and so on you should measure the number of actual votes that the individual receives and i as the West Dorset MP, last election 2019, received the largest single personal vote of any MP ever elected in the West Dorset constituency. I know the majority was less than previously but actually it's about the number of people who believe in you as an individual and who can sufficiently put their trust in, in this case me as an individual, to represent their interests. And um, that is the question that a lot of people will be asking over the, the run-up to the general election. And I would just say that I should be rightly judged on my track record on that front, and that's what I'd expect to, 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 to happen. I've right, no doubt you'll be making that point loud and clear in the oh, campaign well then, when yeah. it comes.
1: Chris, <laughs> so much more we could talk about. I know you've got other meetings to attend. So for the time being, thank you very much yeah, indeed for, the, for sparing your time today. No,
0: it's a pleasure. Thank you. Early last October... The village of Horsington that lies between Wincanton and Temple Coombe launched its first community market. It was held in the village hall and was, by all accounts, a great success. The market was the brainchild of Penny Nagel of Feltham's Farm, well known in the area for their cheeses. Penny, welcome. Um, thank you for talking to us today on the BB podcast. So this is this a lovely idea. What, what inspired you to start uh, the market? I mean, how, how did you come up with the idea?
3: Well, we're um, we're organic uh, cheesemakers based here in um, the Blackmoor Vale and if you've ever worked or known farmers and cheesemakers we work incredibly unsociable hours and we work really hard and you never get to see anyone. And I suddenly realised that actually a lot of people in our village didn't know they, they knew vaguely that there were cheesemakers somewhere on the mar- on, on Horsington Marsh, which is where we are, but they didn't know. They'd never tasted the cheese. They didn't know that we actually grew a lot of organic veg. Um, and I felt that it was a good, particularly with, um, you know, the, the kind of whole shop local, uh, eat local, um, it's a really good uh, idea for people, for farmers to make sure that their local communities know where they are, both in terms of, you know, not just selling them produce, but also kind of to hear what they're after and what they they want to eat. Um, And also just, it's it's about, you know, everyone getting to know each other and coming together as a community. It's really important. And I think COVID taught us that. And as we kind of slip back into um, more normal lives, actually, we need to kind of remember some of the good things uh, about COVID, which is that we did shop local. I mean, we're very aware of climate change here on the marsh because we can see You know, water levels rising. We know that sustainability is a huge issue, and actually, if you have an organic vegetable grower or an organic cheesemaker on your on your doorstep, then you know, go out and eat eat their produce.
0: Uh, I mean, so it's a it's a lovely thing, isn't it? Because um, in the past, of course, uh, markets were much more common, weren't they, In, in villages and towns up and down the country? And I guess the rise of the supermarket sounded the death knell for many of them, didn't it?
3: Yes. I mean, it's not, I guess the supermarket to some extent, but I mean, we're never going, we're never going to be able to provide, you know, we'll never sell you bananas at this market. (laughs) No, well,
0: (laughs) you'd have difficulty growing them in Horsington, I think, wouldn't you?
3: Even, even with my new polytunnel. Yes, I think that that would be the case. So, so, so a local market is really just a kind of, it's, it's, it, it serves several purposes. One, seasonal local vegetables, no fossil fuel miles. There's also a sense... I mean, we have we have donation coffee. So basically, we provide great coffee and people just make a donation and there are chairs and tables so people can sit down and talk to each other. This first market, I took a whole ton of vegetables um, that we, we'd grown there and sold about a tenth of what I'd taken, including our herbs, coriander, mint. You know, I took... Bunches, and we also have we grow artichokes semi-commercially so you know a whole bunch of those nothing very little sold of that but by the second market people had come with their baskets and they were buying and you know we sell things at a low lower level than you would in a supermarket for for that reason because we want people to have the best quality food um at the lowest possible price um that is still reasonable
0: and and i i guess penny that the great thing is that um because it, you sort of almost uh, pulled the vegetables or, or cut them um, that, that day, they've still got a, much, they've got a, a very good uh, vitamin and nutrient value, haven't they? Better than something that you'd get in a shop which might have been sitting there for several days and actually was therefore uh, lost a lot of its nutrient value. Oh, completely. I mean, that is.
3: I mean, that's one of the joys. Actually, the dew. The dew is definitely still on my pumpkins when you buy, <laughs> if you buy them at the at the market, and we've got we've got some. We're not the we're not the only ones there, obviously. Um, I mean, it, it started from you know just a conversation with a, a dear friend of mine, Jeanne Mortarotti, who lives in. Um, in fact, she lives in North Cheriton, the neighbouring village, and she she and her family they come. From, they have a small farm in Sicily so they bring over their olive oil so she's doing tastings of olive oil there and that's a wonderful thing because you've got you know you know you are talking to the producer you're getting the best you know that oil kind of left Sicily they did the harvest in October and then and you're now tasting it in November um so that's that's really wonderful we've got a fantastic bee uh Rachel who does the the bees who uh is a local beekeeper I mean she sold out last time because as as we know local honey is so it's so good for for all sorts of infections and and just kind of, you know, if you have allergies, eating local honey can actually help. We've also got the wonderful, wonderful plant specialists, Blooming Wild, who are based on Cabbage Lane, uh, which is just up on the hill um, opposite Horsington. And it's where all the racehorses are up there. And and then there's wonderful market, it's not a market garden, it's they they grow kind of ornamental plants. Steve and Lindsay uh, uh, bring their plants down to that. So that's a really wonderful thing to see. And yes, we sell sheepskins, we sell sheep horns, <laughs> everything that you would expect from a small farming community is there.
0: So a, a really very nice and very attractive range of uh, of, of produce. And I imagine this was um, when, when you when you first had the idea, thinking that um, as a cheese farmer, like many others, you you have to work very antisocial hours and and uh, never see anybody. So when you sounded people out locally, what sort of reaction did you get?
3: Well, they were you. I mean, it was it was, you know, all always good uh, people saying and a couple of people said, oh, well, you know, th- there's some debate as to what time. And we decided that a Saturday morning was probably the best because it's when most uh, The weekend is when you have a lot of families who, you know, in the village who, who their kids are off school and they can just come down and. Yeah, no, they, the, it, the the take up was good and it's and it's growing as well. So that's um that's something that's um, very heartening to see. Obviously, so all my kids went to the local village school um in Horsington, which is excellent, and so we donate 20% of any income to the village school uh because we just and they're they're raising money for more books and for um a track around their field so that they can do kind of more exciting games in the winter. So all of this um, means, yes, it's very embedded in the community. And what we're trying to, you know, what we're trying to do is just make sure that people, you know, people talk, people talk to each other because that's how that's how good communities people talk to each other.
0: And and of course, a a market like this is is as much a social event, isn't it?
3: Oh, yes. I mean, the time that we sell is actually quite, um, that we're open is quite, uh, quite short. And we've done that deliberately so that you can go up, people can go off and do other things afterwards. Because one of the nightmares when you're a a cheese maker or a kind of farmer is that you have to go to a market for kind of eight hours and it takes you, uh, it means you can't feed the animals, you can't do anything. But one of my great moments from the last market was A very glamorous looking woman arrived with her basket, her her wicker basket and told me that she'd just finished her book and I was able to introduce her to her next door neighbour who was waiting to buy her cheese and said, well, Susan actually is. Um, she just finished a historical, uh, her historical novel that she'd been writing. And I said, "Well, Susan actually is a, is a historian. She and she's an archivist. She re- researches for historic for people who want to find out um, history at uh, you know the history of certain places." And that was really great because you know suddenly these two people, women who'd never met, one was writing a had, was writing a historical novel and one was um, a, a, a researcher, were able to kind of talk about what they were doing. And that's you know that's what a good. That's
0: what a good event is about. You know, so, people, get to, people talk. So I can see, Penny, that you're very good at networking, too. Oh, you've got to be. <laughs> you know, in, in, when, when you're
3: a small, small organic producer, you've got to be good at networking because it's, you know, it's, it's how you add value. You know, it's how you can get you can get things to move and happen. Um, you don't have the money. You certainly don't have a lot of time. Um, but, you know, making sure that people talk and network is, is a good thing.
0: Uh, I can see, Penny, from what you're saying, if the market is expanding, um, that you're going to run out of space in the village hall. Uh, Well, actually,
3: what we've been doing um, on the last time was we we discovered that because we're, we're also quite um, busy people, we didn't want to particularly have to clean up the village hall. So we, if the weather is fine, we hold it outside. And the great thing about being outside, just outside the village hall, is that people see it from the road. They can just join in. You don't feel quite as if you're going in somewhere else where you have to open a door and, you know, adopt a certain persona. You're just outside in the sunshine, hopefully. And um, that means that we can expand into the car park. So, yes. I'm hoping, I'm hoping the weather, sh- the sun shines well, on, on the 2nd of December.
0: I, <laughs> I get, I, Penny, I get the impression that markets are 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 expanding I mean, more and more people are drawn to markets. And you, you mentioned COVID earlier, and that really certainly made people appreciate uh, and shop local wherever they possibly could. But I, I get the impression that markets are on the increase. Um, do you agree?
3: Yes. Um, no, There's. A, I, I, I do agree. There's a wonderful woman who's, or, or a couple of women, who've just started doing markets in, in Dorset, actually, and they're called Ginny's Dairy. Uh, and they have said that they were told by everyone that there was no market for, nobody would buy cheese, because they, they do primarily cheese, um, at market, a market in Salisbury or any of those kind of Dorset areas. And they are doing great business. Um so i think that there, i think people are understanding that actually at a market you will get uh local produce often the sort of produce you wouldn't get from anywhere else and um you're, you're supporting your local farmers i mean they do four markets weekly now in and around um salisbury different locations in dorset and wiltshire and they you know they're flat out they they sell out so i'm so it, i think that's encouraging i know free market is always always popular there's been a bit of a shake-up, I think. Um, the EAT festivals do well. Um, but increasingly, I mean, where we got our idea from, because as you know, there's no such thing as an original idea, I went up to the Shaftesbury Market, which is where a very good friend of ours, um, Carolyn and the Truckle Truck, they, um, she sells brilliant cheese there on a Thursday uh, morning. And I just happened to go into the town hall and there's this whole group of kind of people selling eggs, selling honey, selling kind of hand-knitted things and I and I it seemed to be and they said oh yes that is the that's the Shaftesbury that's the Shaftesbury community market and they make it work in a particular way and it's just so that any local producers who've got any excess can come in and just sell their excess to their neighbours And it was wonderful. I mean, I bought, I bought my eggs there, I bought, you know, I bought a tea cozy, you know, there were a couple of things. And I just thought, actually, we can do this. I know they also do it in Babkeri. And these are just tiny little local markets where, and they're literally for, if you've got six eggs, you can take them along and sell them. So it's not just for, you know, formal or, or kind of commercial producers like us, albeit artisan and organic, but we, you know, we do this for a living. But you could, you know, if you've got hens and you've got six extra eggs, you can bring them to the market and sell them. And that's, and it's specifically set up for that.
0: And and of course, Penny, uh, the, these sorts of things are great in the winter months, aren't they? Because uh, they make you, they make you get out and, you know, otherwise one is shut indoors for so, so much of the time. And uh, how lovely to have a little market that you can go to and just get outside and, and uh, meet other people for a few hours. And, and and for anybody who's lonely, what a great thing to be able to do.
3: Oh, yes. I mean, well, anyone who, anyone who's lonely, but also anyone who, um, uh, you know, I know that when we go on holiday, if we drive to the South of France or something for a holiday, you know, you go to the market as part of your kind of day out because it's so interesting. That's, how, that's where you see what's happening. And I guess that's what we're trying to do here is kind of go, actually, this is... You know, this is that beating heart of the community. This is where you can see, you can meet everyone, see everyone. And, um, yeah, have a coffee, buy some honey, taste some olive oil <laughs>
0: direct from Sicily. And chat to others. Uh, well, and I, chat, wish, yes. I wish you every success with this, Penny. I think it, it's, a, it's a wonderful idea. I wish you very well. Oh Well, we'll please come. We'd love to see you. And we'll, you know, the home baked cakes. We'd love you. You know, we'll treat you to a cake and some coffee. Sounds lovely. I'll I'll take you up on that. So Penny, Penny Nagel of Feltham's Farm in Horsington and instigator of the New Village Community Market. Thank you very much for talking to us.
3: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Today I'm joined by Chris Holbrook and Ed Waldron of the Orris Leather fame, and we are sat in their rather delightful house in uh, near Dorchester. First of all, guys, I just need to know a little bit about the background to how you set up the business. Now, how long have you known each other for a
5: start? Uh, about four, four years or so. And I guess really the, the origins of it are Chris's area to talk about because he got me into it.
6: So um, my stepdad is a cobbler and he's been a cobbler his entire life. Uh, and his father before him was also a cobbler. So it kind of runs in the in the veins. Um, so I came back to Dorchester. Um, i have kind of sort of learning the ropes a little bit. Um, so doing shoe repair, you do lots of repairs to other things, bags, lots of leather goods. So I'm kind of used to doing that every day. And I kind of thought, you know, I'd like to have a go at maybe seeing where this goes. I did a shoemaking course. Um, and from there, I spoke to Ed about it. And we kind of said, you know, let's have a go. And Ed started joining in too. And then from there, we just kept on making and making and making
1: the the family business is shoe making and shoe repairs uh, is that
6: um so shoe repairs predominantly so they sell it's a shopping door Dorchester
1: say so. and you're still working in that shop because you've both got day jobs as it were in, in addition to the, the leather business ed your day job is something different again isn't it
5: yes yeah so i work in healthcare. i'm a nurse and a university lecturer so this is completely different
1: How do you balance what is obviously a a growing and successful business against those day jobs? I mean, do you want to keep doing what you're doing? Or is there an aspiration that one day you might
5: make the business your full-time occupations? I guess it's hard to get that balance, especially for where we are now. Obviously, as you said, it's growing as a business. So it's at that point where we're kind of having to do the, the work that we are doing in our day jobs to kind of fund and keep us keep us living. Um, But at the same time, you know, we're at that kind of cusp point of how how do you move to the next step to to be able to make enough, to be able to survive. And that's increasingly difficult with traditional craft businesses um, because we're fighting against a very commercial um, entity in terms of mass manufacture. So, yes, we would like to get to the stage of being able to perhaps alter the way that we do our working lives, whatever that looks like. But trying to find a way to make it work is uh, proving challenging. And Ed, your
1: background is not in leather at all. I mean, I know the day job has nothing to do
5: with it, but um, the background
1: in the family... Did I read something about embroidery, is
5: that right? Yeah, absolutely. So my mother is a very keen... Uh, crafter and kind of grew up surrounded by lots of needle craft so I started doing some embroidery years ago and just fell in love with it so that's kind of the skills are very transferable in some ways it's definitely taught me how to control and use a needle well um, so actually in some ways it's stood me in really good stead for leather work. Okay, so the
1: two of you got together and you had this idea to, well, it started as a hobby, did it really? Or it became a business through the hobby? Am I right in that?
6: Yeah, pretty much. We started as a hobby and it kind of started with making wallets, things that were practical for us to use. And then we decided to move on to belts. And I think, as we said before in the article, there's only so many belts and wallets you can make for yourself before you kind of think, well, actually, maybe we need to take this to the next step. So, yeah, we did our first little village show leather and from there we've kind of just grown really
1: and is that the market you go into when you're doing what is I guess an artisan type profession like this you you start by going to shows and most of that is just showing your wares but eventually people start to show an interest in it and, and want to process it is that a fair summarization
6: Yeah definitely I mean I think when you're kind of starting out you just have to try everything to see where your market is and as we've kind of grown over time. We found that our market maybe doesn't fit some of the places we used to go to, but it's just about finding the right market for you.
1: You both came to this without any real formal education. You, neither of you had done any further education or training or apprenticeships in the field, although obviously, Chris, you've got a bit of a background in the, the business. How do you go about learning how to do
5: it? Because I know you set yourselves at incredibly high standards, don't you? Yes, interesting. I guess we're very fortunate to live in a time where there is lots of access to resources via uh social media and things like YouTube. Um and you know we started watching watching videos and you quickly learn from there which are, shall we say, more reputable um leather workers and we certainly started following people like uh saddlers or master saddlers who were who were demonstrating um because their skill set is second to none. Um, and then from there, you just keep honing, you keep doing something. If it doesn't work, you do something else and you keep trying. Um, and you're right, we set ourselves some really high standards. We, we never scrimp on the quality of the products that we produce. And that's always been our kind of selling point is the finish of the product. And with that in mind, how has the business
1: developed? You, we mentioned that you go to various trade shows and that was the the way you set out. You got orders from that and and presumably you gain reputation, you've got a website. How do you gain customers? Is that just a bit of an osmosis effect?
6: It's just about um, showing up, basically. So kind of you may have a show where we go to that's not successful, but then we go, go in the next month and the people maybe have recognised us and they come back for something else. So it's just about that consistency of kind of being a presence, even if it's not always going to plan. And then if it's, you know, you can try new things. So, you know, we have lots of different shows that we kind of have our fingers in I suppose fingers in pies so we try those see how it goes and then if it doesn't go we think okay well let's try
1: somewhere else. Typically who are your customers I suppose this is a really daft question in some ways because you'll probably tell me that they're a wide range and there's no typical customer so I'm guessing that it tends to be people who are appreciating fine goods and and have a bit of cash to
5: spend on such is that fair? Yes and no I think Very often it's people who are looking for something a little different, but particularly those who are looking for something that is quality, um, and often that's the the kind of overarching message of people when they come and speak to us. It's this is a quality product and I want it. Um, but we try and appeal to all markets. So we have items that cost five pounds and we have items that cost significantly more than that. Um, so we try and make sure that we can appeal to those who don't have the disposable income because we know that it's difficult at the moment financially. Apart from actually manufacturing
1: this stuff you actually design it as well how do you set about designing something that's different from the thousands of other leather bags that are probably already on the market
6: it's kind of a mixed answer i suppose there's lots of resources online that you can look at um, and it's about thinking how could we change that or what's practical for us so we would look at things like our own wallets and say well actually you know i only need a couple of cards Um, you kind of brainstorm things and you sort of do designs and it's a process so you know it kind of goes from the design on paper to on card is that going to work then on card to leather and at that point we have to be kind of pretty sure it's going to work because obviously it's wasting leather otherwise but it's yeah it's just about lots of trial and error I suppose as well
5: and I think one of the things that we often do is, even if we have a product that works, we don't necessarily stop designing it at that point. We will always have a look and see if there's anything that can be just tweaked or refined to make it different or more user-friendly or you know that kind of thing. So it's it's never a static process. Well, you must be doing it well, because not only have you got a successful business, but you've won awards. Just tell us about those. Uh, we've actually won a couple of awards now. So one of them was um award in award Dorset, um, for uh, with the Dorset County show so that was the perpetual challenge trophy um, for the best handicraft exhibit which was a suede lined handbag that I made and then we also won another award which I'll let Chris talk about.
6: Abbey is a kind of reputable company that sells leather, leather goods have been in the industry for a long time and they had a competition which was um, to look for the 40 best leather workers under 40. So I just got in there thankfully. So we kind of applied for that and we were very fortunate to win a place in that 40 under 40. So we went to Walsall for the day and we got to go meet Susie Fletcher. It was really amazing. Um, She did kind of a masterclass with us looking at repairs but it was just a really 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 lovely day.
1: Susie Fletcher of the repair shop fame. Okay you've got the successful business, you've got a growing business. We've talked about day jobs and how you balance that which must be increasingly difficult the more successful the business gets what's the plans for the future where would you like to see it going in the next couple of years
6: it's a hobby as well as a business and I think as much as we kind of said you know we'd like to do more of it essentially we just want to produce high quality products that's kind of our thing so I guess long term and where the business is going we maybe go to different events appeal to a different audience we kind of have already and just keep developing our skills more importantly i think as a business it's important that we are the best we can be so we can produce good products
5: i think one of the things that we've also started doing within the last year is doing some tuition um and that i think that would be a, another kind of string to our bow another thing to just and it encourages people into leather craft as well because there isn't very much facility for people to learn especially around here so it just gives people a chance to give it a go so you can come and make a wallet or make a belt or if you want to do something specific like we had a, a a. someone who wanted to repair an antique sword case and we were able to help them to do that. So I think that's really rewarding to see because you can see a passion kind of grow in someone when they start you know, seeing what they can produce with their two hands. And so important in passing
1: on skills to successive generations. That's great. And, and so I guess the final... Obvious question is where can people see your works? There's a a few photographs in the the uh, BV magazine online, but where else can they see it? You've got a website,
5: haven't you? Yep, we've got a website www.orisleather.co.uk. We are on social media: Instagram, Facebook, Twitter tiktok all under the handle of at oris leather and on our website you can also under the where to find us page you can see all of the events that we attend with links to all the event pages so you can find out more information
6: and we also have some stock in shoe trees so obviously me being there it's a good kind of conduit so people can come if they want to sort of pick up something they want to drop something off Um, lots of repairs that are a bit more specialist we take on Um, shoe trees at dorchester
1: Chris Ned, many thanks for talking to us. and We wish you well with the
0: continuing success of the business. Thank you very much.
1: Thank
6: you.
0: And that's it for this second and final episode of the November 2023 BV podcast. Terry and I will be back again next month with more stories from rural Dorset for you. Until then, this is Jenny Devitt saying goodbye. And it's
1: goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.